Well, um, the UN Refugee Agency uh, has said very clear it's a flagrant violation of it. And that's for the simple reason that the Convention obliges countries to hear the asylum claims of anyone who is on the territory, regardless of how they entered. So the UN is very clear that it breaks the Convention. There's something important to bear in mind, though, uh, with the Refugee Convention, is that there's no global police officer to enforce it. In other words, there's no dedicated court for determining breaches of the Refugee Convention. And what that means is that the UK, is, we could say, is bound by it in theory, but not in practice. So hello and welcome to the Still We Rise podcast. I'm your host, Nathan. And our focus today is on the Legal Immigration Bill, introduced to Parliament by the Home Secretary, Suella Braverman. So yet another immigration bill, this one may have the most far-reaching consequences. The United Nations High Commission for Refugees has called it a de facto asylum ban. Bear in mind Britain is still a signatory to the Refugee Convention. Written into that convention's articles and international law was a promise to humanity that wherever despots reign through persecution and torture, our fellow human beings were not restricted by borders to seek sanctuary, that they could flee and seek safety without prior authorization because they were exercising their right to life and safety. So Britain has implemented this convention for some 70 years now. There's a really instructive case in 1999, ex part Adimi, in which Lord Justice Simon Brown articulates the following. And... It's quite striking. He says that the problem facing refugees in their quest for asylum need little emphasis. Prominent amongst them is the difficulty of gaining access to a friendly shore. He goes on to say escapes from persecution have long been characterized by subterfuge and false papers. And so this bill engages in particular Article 31 of the Convention, where contracting states shall not impose penalties on account of a refugee's illegal entry or presence, provided they're coming directly from a territory where their life or freedom was threatened in the sense of Article 1. And when they enter this new territory where they're seeking sanctuary, provided that they present themselves without delay to authorities and show good cause for their illegal entry or presence, So there's a lot of complexity in how this can be interpreted. And so to distill all of this for us, I'm delighted that we're joined today by Dr. Peter Walsh, who's a senior researcher at the Migration Observatory and department lecturer in Migration Studies at the University of Oxford. So, Peter, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. So here we are, yet another immigration bill, Peter. The problems facing refugees are are really difficult in in Britain at this time. So what is the purpose, do you think, of this peculiarly titled Illegal Immigration Bill, particularly given Parliament recently passed the Nationality and Borders Act, which at that time we were told was necessary to stop irregular arrivals? Well, it has on the face of it, the same purpose as the Nationality and Borders Act, that's to deter 
irregular arrivals, and it proposes to do so in two main ways. Uh, one is by threatening them with removal, either to their own country or some other safe country. Rwanda would be the only one with which we have an agreement at the moment. And the other is by denying access to the asylum system or any kind of lawful immigration status to anyone who enters outside normal immigration rules. So what this means is that no asylum seeker entering unlawfully will ever in the future, if this bill passes into law, which it surely will, will be allowed to stay, regardless of whether they are a genuine refugee or not. Now, although it has the same aim as the Nationality and Borders Act, it's remarkably actually more extreme because it appears to opt the UK out of the global asylum system as we know it, which is, after all, based on hearing people's claims however they arrive, even if without authorization. I mean, that, that sounds extraordinary. So do, do you think the United Nations are right? It's, it's a de facto asylum ban, is it? Uh, it certainly uh, looks that way. Yes, absolutely. And that's the UN has been very clear um, about that. There's one potential um, exception, mm. which is um, for those who actually arrive in the UK legally, mm-hmm on a visa for some other purpose, say a work visa, a student visa, or a tourist visa, and then there's a deterioration of conditions back home uh, in their country of origin, and then they claim asylum. So they would be okay, but virtually everyone else wouldn't be. And that's for the simple reason that there's no legal way to come to the UK for the specific purpose of claiming asylum. And to claim asylum in the UK, you actually have to be on British soil. There's no asylum visa. So that's why people take these irregular routes, you know, such as by small boat in the first place. Right. Okay. So as you say, these small boats are still arriving. And because there are no safe routes for for some nationalities, as we'll discuss. So when this bill becomes law, what effect will that have on new arrivals? So if people turn up a day after this bill is passed, what actually happens? Well, the bill's actually retrospective, so they'd have to have turned up after it uh, was initially introduced to Parliament, which was on the 7th of March, uh, was it? Um, so wow. I think... Is, is that unprecedented, purpose, it being retrospective? It, it is unusual, yes, mm. that's unusual. And there are people who would argue that that undermines the rule of law and that it's not fair to change the law such that something that was acceptable at one point in the past, that behavior, that action has already been committed. Now it's no longer acceptable. So there are questions there about the rule of law and uh, lawyers such as those at the Immigration Law Practitioners Association have made that argument particularly persuasively. Um, So I suppose the question is, will it have the deterrent effect that the government are hoping for. Uh, They're hoping it will put people off. It may put some people off, but there's actually remarkably, um, surprisingly, uh, little evidence that deterrence policies uh, in general uh, have any kind of big effect. I think one impact will be 
um, re recall that the government said it's going to detain and deport all of these individuals who arrive without authorization. Well, mm -hmm. if the government can't remove people, uh, and there's a very real prospect that it won't be able to remove people, it will end up detaining them potentially for very long periods um, with support from the state. So they'll be held in limbo. That's one quite plausible outcome. And that's because um, the government does not have a track record of removing people seeking asylum. In fact, very similar rules have been on the books for two years now. And of the roughly 20,000 people who the government has tried to remove, it's only been able to remove 21. And that's because to remove people, you need the agreement of countries that you're removing them to. Um, and the government only has an agreement with one such country, Rwanda. No one's actually been sent to Rwanda yet. So that's that's a real big practical challenge, I think, that this policy raises. Above all of the legal questions, there are these practical questions of where will the government detain people? The detention estate, last time I checked, had a capacity of about 2,500. And then where will it send them? From from everything that you're saying, it sounds like this is, it's inoperable. You can't practically implement this. So why do you think they're bringing it? Because as you say, deterrent effect doesn't seem to work. The people on boats are still arriving. Well, what's, the yeah. what's the broader purpose of this thing? Well, you know, the government say they're trying to prevent and deter irregular arrivals. But some critics have said, well... This policy bears the hallmarks of uh, a symbolic policy. Mm. In other words, in other words, um, the goal is not to um, there's not the expectation that it will see uh, achieve some realistic policy goal. Instead, it's about sending a message, a message like, "Look, we are getting tough on this issue, uh, and we're we're going to be much tougher than the Labour government." So some people have. Some commentators have observed this is a classic example of symbolic policymaking. Right. Okay. So, what's your analysis then? Because Britain has a really proud record of of receiving refugees and resettling people. So, what we've seen lately is that the government is creating safe routes for particular nationalities. So, for Ukrainians, they can arrive here on a, on a visa. Hong Kong nationals can come through as well. There's a limited scheme for people coming from Afghanistan, whilst at the same time bringing in this type of legislation, which effectively bars people from claiming asylum. What's your analysis of that? Yeah, so there's a real tension there. And this actually continues a trend that's been happening for many years now. So the government's been opening up what it calls bespoke humanitarian routes. Now, their nationality specific but mm. can be somewhat liberal and at the same time they're restricting the asylum application process and i think the reason for this is because those seeking protection because there's no safe and legal route to come to the uk mm. those who are coming here and claiming asylum they're entering via small boat and remember this is a government that's really emphasized control in the arena of migration policy and small boat arrivals in the tens of thousands is a is particularly clear signal that the government does not have control of the border. And so I think that's why they've tried to restrict the normal asylum process because most people, well, many people are going into that entering irregularly. Now, just one thing I ought to say, mm. 
you you touched upon a number of safe and legal routes there. They're all safe. They're all legal. There are some important differences between them, though. So the Hong Kong BNO visa, that's interesting because there's actually no assessment of risk of persecution there. That's a visa scheme that makes it easier for certain Hong Kongers to migrate to the UK than if they applied under the normal work, study or family visa routes. The visa is cheaper, but there's still substantial expense because of the NHS charge. Mm -hmm. But once you're here, it's the most liberal visa we have in a sense. You can do whatever you want. You can work in any job, you can study, or you can just do nothing. Um, so that's the Hong Kong visa, but it's really just a liberal kind of normal visa. The Ukraine schemes, of course, they're for Ukrainian nationals. They're particularly liberal. Um, so long as you have family members here or you can find a sponsor. And then you have the Afghanist Afghanistan schemes, and they're actually fairly restrictive. Uh, and that's because it's they're refugee resettlement schemes. And you can't actually apply for refugee resettlement. For asylum, you can. For the Ukrainian visa, Hong Kong visa, you can. But you can't. And so it's that's why it's been compared. I don't know if uh, you'll remember this. I expect, yes, you're probably young, young or old enough to remember yeah. the first Toy Story yeah. uh, film, Nathan. And there's a scene in there where yeah. the uh, heroes find themselves in an amusement arcade grabber machine. Yeah. And there's all these little alien toys and they view the claw as akin to a god mm. that takes them to a better place. And that's what refugee resettlement is like. The claw is the UN and it's a lottery. And the chances of you being selected to be resettled are very small indeed. And the Afghan Citizens Resettlement Scheme, it had a target of about 5,000 individuals a year. Well, there are millions of Afghans outside of Afghanistan in need of resettlement. So the chance of them actually being resettled is very small. And that's why we've actually seen last year Afghans, the second most common nationality, arriving in small boats. Wow. I mean, that's, that's really interesting. So a really, there's all types of ends. So there's a really liberal scheme for, for Hong Kong and Ukrainian nationals. Afghans have limitations on what they can do. Uh, it's really, it's really difficult for a lot of our listeners to reconcile all of this because the Home Office data itself shows that there's a high grant rate for most nationalities who arrive, who arrive on small boats. So one in four arrivals are from Afghanistan. When they're processing those asylum claims, 91% of Afghans are granted asylum, 90, 98% of Syrians, 97% of Eritreans, 95% of Sudanese people are granted asylum. So these are all people who are arriving on small boats. So the question that arises then, Peter, is is one of access to the asylum system and protection of human rights for people who arrive from a manifestly unsafe country. So is there or is there not a ban on the right to asylum for people who will arrive after March 7th? given those type of grant rates? Um, yes, I mean, there is, <laughs> simply. Um, so just to be clear about those um, statistics. Hmm. So, um, so yeah, those are the grant rates for those nationalities. 
um, in 2022. Yeah. Um, but those are not actually, and this is just a, a technical point, I don't think it's going to change the grant rates much, mm. but those aren't actually individuals who have arrived by small boat for the most part, because applications take so long. Mm. Those will have been Afghan, Eritrean, Sudanese nationals, Syrian nationals, etc., who probably arrived in earlier periods. Right. Um, and it's just because the, the backlog is, you know, over 160,000 now. Claims are taking an average of 20 months to decide. So a good many of those actually won't have arrived by small boats. But I don't think it really changes the picture much. People arriving by small boats, those are the nationalities that predominate. Historically, those nationalities have very high success rates. And this new bill says, listen, um, it doesn't matter whether or not you're a genuine genuine refugee. We're not going to allow you to claim asylum and we're going to remove you. So how do you reconcile that with Britain still being a signatory to the Refugee Convention then? Well, um, the UN Refugee Agency uh, has said very clear it's a flagrant violation of it. And that's for the simple reason that the Convention obliges countries to hear the asylum claims of anyone who is on the territory, regardless of how they entered. So the UN is very clear that it breaks the convention. There's something important to bear in mind, though, mm. uh, with the Refugee Convention, is that there's no global police officer to enforce it. In other words, there's no dedicated court for determining breaches of the Refugee Convention. And what that means is that the UK, is, we could say, is bound by it in theory, but not in practice. Yeah, I mean, that's, that will be something very difficult for most of our listeners who are who are compassionate and um, have some empathy for, for people who arrive that, you know, it's, there's this margin of appreciation that exists and, and Britain can just interpret the convention in, in any way it likes. What, what will be their immediate impact of this bill on the detention estate? Because earlier you talked about how you don't think that Britain has the capacity so can, can the Home Secretary, can she legally just detain and deport everyone once this bill becomes law? Uh, well, she can. Um, yes, she can. Uh, she can detain a non-citizen at any point uh, in their immigration process. Now, Home Office policy and international law state that detention must be used sparingly. Mm -hmm. and for the shortest period necessary. And in theory, it should really only be used for longer periods when there's a realistic prospect of removing the individual. Uh, now, I should say most people are detained for short periods, so 90% are held for less than a month, looking at the latest statistics. Mm -hmm. But listen, I mean, some are held for very long periods. I was looking at the the people who have been in there for the longest, and there's seven people who have been in there for more than two years and the person who's been held in there for the longest at the moment, they've been held for 1,600 days. That's four and a half years. Um, so, Just, yes. Are, are we told why they're being held? Um, we aren't. So we, these individuals, we don't know. Um, clearly, there's been issues in removing them. They're not being able to be removed. And I'm sure the government would be trying it could be uh, because it's conducive to the public good. That's one reason. Uh, but there are a variety of others, and we don't have the breakdown. But so legally, the Home Secretary can do this, and this bill would actually place a duty on her to detain and remove uh, irregular arrivals. But I think the bigger problem here is actually 
not so much legal assuming it can pass all the legal challenges and there are real questions there it's the practical challenges where are we going to hold people and where are we going to send them to I mean, there's big open questions that that is a really really big question because the the Rwanda plan is currently inoperable and because of Brexit we're out of um, Dublin 3 that's mm. not accessible so is there a real prospect of habeas corpus breaches so people being detained without trial right breach of their human rights right yeah so these days challenges uh, to unlawful detention are typically brought about in the form of judicial review proceedings. So it's an appeal to a court um, rather than uh, habeas corpus claims. So mm. the issue is the bill proposes to ban um, judicial review proceedings that would challenge unlawful detention. So there would still be the right to apply for habeas corpus. So detention could still be challenged in habeas corpus cases and we might see more of those that's true because the bill bans the previous avenue for challenging unlawful detention which was judicial review hmm. what do you think will happen peter with with rwanda because we we saw the home secretary last week um arrive in kigali and too much fanfare it looks like the way the pic the pictures that we've seen with her broadly smiling at some properties being constructed behind her which she she claimed would house uh, people who were removed to rwanda do you think a flight will actually take off from britain to kigali that is still very much an open question so rwanda is mired in the courts at the moment it's undergoing numerous legal challenges it's now in the court of appeal which just the judge ruled that people could bring challenges on the grounds of um, safety and fairness of being removed to Rwanda. In all likelihood, this will go all the way up to the Supreme Court. Uh, and that would mean that we probably wouldn't see a ruling on the legality of the policy as a whole uh, within a year. Um, so, so, and it remains to be seen whether the government will be successful. It was successful at the High Court. Hmm. It's it, it said the High Court ruled that the Rwanda policy in itself didn't breach the Refugee Convention and that it was legal as a whole. That same judge also threw out a number of particular deportation, uh, uh, I think eight uh, deportations of specific individuals, but it ruled the policy was okay as a whole. And so we're going to see whether the Court of Appeal and probably the Supreme Court uh, agrees with that, but we're not going to be seeing um, anyone sent to Rwanda until these legal cases have been worked out. Hmm. It seems like there's there's great difficulty ahead. So historically, talk to our audience about how detention has worked, because presumably it can only be used in very limited cases because of capacity issues. And you've touched on that already, that there isn't sufficient capacity. So if, say, in 2023, 40,000 people arrive where is Suella Braverman going to put these people? Yeah, great question. So historically, um, yes, the detention estate it has been used uh, in limited cases, somewhat sparingly. Uh, fewer people are detained now than they used to be, and for shorter periods. So in 2015, mm -hmm. three and a half thousand people were in immigration 
uh, detention. Uh, now it's closer to 2,000. Now, this policy proposes to reverse that. Um, but if boat arrivals and other irregular arrivals continue at the tens of thousands mm-hmm. uh, per year, then where are they going to be held? The detention estate would have to be substantially scaled up um, to be able to hold all those people and potentially for some time. So they may very well end up uh, being accommodated in hotels, as we've seen. We have 50,000 people, asylum seekers currently in hotels. That's very expensive. It's not good for anyone. It's not good for the integration outcomes of those in hotels. You might think, oh, that's pretty cushy, but actually it's very isolating to live in a hotel, much better to live in a local community. Um, so, yeah, there are real, real questions um, there. But yes, it has been used sparingly in the past. Human rights challenges have played a part in that in getting people released on bail. But yeah, for sure, this promises a real big shakeup. And it may be if people, if there's not the detention capacity, and I would suspect there wouldn't be for some time, mm-hmm. the government's going to have to continue relying on hotels, bed and breakfasts and the like. And we've seen far-right protesters outside hotels, which are which are housing people seeking asylum. Do you, do you see that carrying on? If because this will be like double the number of of capacity in hotels. Potent, yeah, potentially, um, potentially even more. So, uh, in the medium term, so it's very uncertain what what kinds of effects that will have upon local community relations. Not entirely clear what what happened by the way whether it was really an, a person who was an asylum seeker and staying in that hotel in that case it's been very difficult to verify the details mm. but yeah much uncertainty ahead for sure and so going forward what we'll see in the coming weeks once this bill becomes an act and becomes law is the legality of it will be key because it appears to unravel the refugee convention and potentially violates international human rights law What's your analysis? What do you think will happen? So legal challenges are absolutely certain. What was quite remarkable about this illegal migration bill is on the very front page, Mm. there was a statement from the Home Secretary uh, saying she can't guarantee it will be compatible with the European Convention on Human Rights. And if she's saying she can't guarantee that, (laughs) that that implies that it isn't compatible. so we've we've discussed about the refugee convention and how um you know there's no global police officer to enforce it but the other aspect of international law is international human rights law mm. and that does have uh, a court uh, to enforce it that's the european court of human rights in strasbourg and it's likely that challenges will be brought from that um on the basis of the right against detention against unfair treatment and for sure it's going to be uh, challenged in domestic courts as well. So we're going to see it challenged in both of those uh, courts. That's what we can look forward to. Um, but I think almost more important than the legal challenges, uh, for, for me anyway, uh, not being a lawyer, mm. are just these are just these practical ones. You know, I just keep coming back to where are these people going to be held and where are they going to be sent to? Because you need bilateral agreements with countries. We have one, only one, with Rwanda, and you've seen where that's gone. Uh, we're no longer part of Dublin. That allowed us to transfer asylum seekers to the first safe country they travel through. We're no longer a part of that. And I've seen precious little evidence that we've made much progress in developing these all-important returns agreements with countries. And just the principle, Peter, of paying another state 
to host refugees who we could host here. What do you think about that? Because Australia has done that in that it sent people to, to Nauru. Um, and we saw so many human rights breaches there. And what do you make of that? Do you think the ramifications of this bill in Britain is that other states internationally will emulate what we're doing here? So in terms of the ramifications on the international stage, well, they're, apart from challenges in the European Court of Human Rights, they're actually more likely to be reputational. Mm. Um, and especially in respect of the Refugee Convention. Now, the concern is indeed that other countries might follow suit. Uh, and refugee NGOs are very anxious about that because the entire global asylum system is based on countries sharing responsibility for refugees. And the whole system would collapse if that weren't to be the case. And you can demonstrate that with a thought experiment. Okay, let's say the UK is not going to take refugees. It's going to push them back to France. And then if France makes the same decision, it pushes them back and it pushes them back. And eventually they're pushed all the way back to their country of origin and, and the entire asylum system has collapsed. So there's a real danger there in, in respect of rwanda specifically so australia yes experimented with offshoring that was widely regarded as a humanitarian disaster and it was extremely expensive hundreds of times more expensive than just processing the claims of these individuals in while well, they were living in local australian communities but there's also israel now israel also sent about four thousand asylum seekers to rwanda and uganda mm -hmm. And what was found is that when they were chased up, it was found that of the you know thousands in Rwanda, there were barely two dozen that remained. In other words, they hadn't stuck around in Rwanda to follow their asylum claims through. They continued on with asylum-seeking journeys, and many had been picked up again in Germany. Mm. So it may be that, and and with our Rwanda policy, mm. we we don't know exactly what the conditions are going to be like in these facilities. Uh, we expect people won't be able to avail themselves of legal advice, which is a problem, especially from the perspective of human rights. But one thing we do know mm. is that it was said that people would be free to come and go from these facilities as they see fit. And of course, that leaves open the possibility that they will just simply leave and continue their asylum seeking journeys. And we may see them back here in the fullness of time. If If they were to do that and came back to Britain, does this bill have banned them from from making an asylum claim if they come back. So it does. And that's why there are some concerns about actually what would be the practical uh, effect of this. Because whenever policies like this are, are implemented, and we've seen this in the case of the US and other European countries, it, it pushes people into more dangerous routes. And so one effect might be, because at present, people crossing in small boats, these are they're not trying to avoid detection. They're trying to make their way to British territorial waters, mm -hmm. then to attract the attention of the Coast Guard or the RNLI or Border Force, uh, so they can be picked up and safely escorted to, UK, to the UK. Um, but with this policy, well, might they try, attempt more dangerous clandestine routes in small boats? Might they re return to lorries, hide in containers in greater numbers and there's some evidence that those are actually more dangerous if you look at the number of people that die in lorries and in containers on their way to the uk and then there are those in the uk who 
um, you know, previously would have considered claiming asylum? And is it just going to push them further underground and they'll instead uh, enlarge the irregular migrant population rather than claiming asylum and having their claims heard? So these are some of the domestic uh, impacts as well that uh, are possible and that have led to concern on the part of some commentators. Mm. Right. In your wide-ranging research on migration at the Migration Observatory, talk to us about deterrence as a mechanism. How effective is it where it's been used? Right. Great question. So there's surprisingly little evidence that deterrence policies actually work. And it's for a quite simple reason, which is that people, asylum seekers, they don't know about the policies that are going to await them in the countries to which they're moving. And where they do know about them, there's this question about, well, will they view removal to Rwanda? And by the way, at present, Rwanda has capacity only for a few hundred individuals. It would have to be substantially scaled up for the probability of being removed to Rwanda to be meaningful. So at present, if the probability of being removed to Rwanda is so small, you know, tens of thousands of arrivals, only a few hundred places in Rwanda, there is also this question about whether people thinking of moving will just view that as one more risk mm-hmm. alongside the arguably much bigger risks that they're already taking and getting in a small boat. Now, there's one caveat here, which is that the research evidence on deterrence policies, mm-hmm. they are from countries implementing less extreme deterrence policies than this. Policies that do not opt countries essentially out of the refugee convention and the global asylum system. So there is some uncertainty. Um, the evidence we have currently suggests deterrence policies are unlikely to have much effect, but we do have to wait and see. I mean, the evidence does suggest that things that work more effectively are actually physical barriers to preventing people from entering a country. So walls, for example, are quite effective. Australia um, deploys uh, boat pushbacks where it intercepts boats at sea, but it does escort them back to their countries of departure and it has the agreement of those countries. Now, the UK could do something like this with France, and actually that might be relatively more effective, Mm. but the French don't want any any part of that and the reality is these people are desperate to come to the uk why well it's because they have family member here members friends members of their community that's why they choose the uk and spend all this extra money and take all this additional risk getting in a small boat that's a pretty compelling reason for many people what what has happened to family reunion because if if that is the case that most of these people have relatives here. Why is it that they can't be reunited with their family in a safe and legal way? Well, what has Britain done with family reunion rules? Well, it's restricted them, and they were already very restrictive. Um, So refugee family reunion is the one, the route that's most pertinent to people seeking protection. So that's where you come to the UK, you claim asylum, Mm -hmm. you're successful, you're granted refugee status, And then you're permitted to bring your family over. But that's only your partner and any children under the age of 18. Adult children can't be brought, parents, siblings. It's very restrictive. If you're an unaccompanied asylum-seeking child that's granted status, you're not even allowed to bring over your parents. Goodness. 
you know, so what, a sixteen-year-old. What is that though, Peter? What, 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 what's the government trying to achieve by separating families? Um, it's a good, good question. I think you probably have to ask the government. <laughs> I seem, I seem to recall that one argument was something like, um, well, we, it didn't want to incentivize families sending their children alone. Mm -hmm. And then the children, and there's a term for this, mm -hmm. uh, fun functioning as an anchor. That was the the terminology that has been used in the United States. And then, okay, once the child is in, they're able to bring their family. But, I mean, listen, if the child is successful in their asylum claim, they're recognized as a genuine refugee, mm -hmm. surely, I mean, that... I mean, that's proof enough that probably the entire family is in need of protection yeah. and they probably all need to be. So that's that's a very good question. Yeah. I, don't, I don't have a good answer for you. But the Nationality and Borders Act actually restricted refugee family reunion for those um, arriving uh, irregularly. We haven't really seen what effect that's had yet because it hasn't been. Uh, but for sure, I mean, one outcome is that fewer people will be able to be joined by their close family members. In, in the UK. Yeah, it, it does seem like there's very, very little humanity in some of the way that this legislation is, is, construct, is constructed and, and compassion. You've written, Peter, um, quite compellingly about how people become irregular migrants. So this law will affect tens of thousands of people. I want to understand from you what you think the direct effect of the legislation will be because we saw Theresa May, who herself brought in some pretty hostile immigration rules, which resulted in Windrush, talking in Parliament about this bill, saying that people who are modern slaves will be affected. They won't be able to access modern slavery law. Trafficking victims, there's a lot of people who are exploited in this country who are used as cheap labor. And the charity sector has had to pick up people who become irregular migrants. So talk to us about how people become irregular mi migrants and the impact that these type of laws have on their lives. Yeah. So typically people who are arriving via small boat, that's an irregular entry. But as soon as they claim asylum, mm. they, are, they become lawful residents until their claim has been refused and they've exhausted all rights of appeal. So even though they enter uh, irregularly, once they claim asylum, that functions as a, as a trump card. It doesn't matter how you entered. You're then in the UK legally for the purposes, uh, for the duration of the processing of your claim. Now, this bill says, OK, we're not going to allow people uh, to claim asylum. So they're going to be without status, even if they'd been trafficked or um, for the purposes of slavery, they wouldn't be able to claim asylum because many people, they actually say, hey, look, I've been trafficked mm -hmm. against my will. Um, they want um, People want to enslave me and they can uh, uh, get asylum that way. This bill says no. And these uh, protections, modern slavery protections, as they're known, they're not going to uh, prevent you, uh, prevent us from trying to remove you. Um, so what does that mean? Uh, if, if people can't be detained and they're kept in hotels, well, they could disappear. There's a real risk that they'll just be driven underground. What does that mean? That does mean a rise in exploitation. They could be pushed back into the hands of their traffickers. And so, and yeah, of course, 
the charity sector often has to pick up pick up the pieces here and render support to individuals uh, who are without status, which is what this bill uh, promises to do. So that's that's quite concerning. Mm, so goodness, this could add to the undocumented population that already exists in the country. And it's quite yeah. a large, large population. The Pew Research thinks it's estimated at about 800,000 to 1.2 million people. That's right. Now, there were some... Um, it's a very, very difficult uh, estimation to make because this is a population that actually doesn't want mm. uh, to be counted. It's like counting the uncountable. That's what that's been likened to. And um, I wrote a report with Madeline Sumption, the director of the Migration Observatory, really going into some detail on some of the limitations of the Pew Estimates. Mm. Um, but, but as flawed though they are, um, most estimates do agree that the irregular migrant population is fairly large. In other words, it's the hundreds of thousands rather than, say, the tens of thousands. Is it as high as a million? Is it two, three million? We, we, the fact is, we have to be humble. We just don't know. Okay. But yes, but yes, this could feed, um, if it operates as anticipated, with people continuing to arrive uh, not being allowed to claim asylum, not being able to be removed, then yes, this would add uh, quite considerably uh, to the irregular migrant population. Right. Um, it's been a fascinating conversation with you, Peter. Finally, let's talk, let's do a comparative analysis. Net migration, mm. this is legal migration to so people arriving mm. here on visas, is the highest it's ever been. Um, I think it's about 500,000 is the latest data from from the Home Office. It's driven largely by the care work of Visa Read, which has seen some tens of thousands of people arrive. Um, and it's attracting a lot of people from the Commonwealth. How do you reconcile Britain's reliance on foreign workers with its treatment of refugees? Mm. Yeah, so just on the net migration, yeah, it's also been driven by high record, in fact, student migration and all these uh, bespoke humanitarian routes, Ukraine and Hong Kong. I'm not sure these are reconcilable. I mean, they're they're different things um, and they have different logics. So, you know, carers and other workers, they come legally. Uh, we need them. They benefit the economy. Um, refugees, uh, we don't allow them to benefit the economy because asylum seekers are not permitted to work while they're making um while they're awaiting a decision on their claim that policy could be changed uh, but that is the policy the government says otherwise it would act as a pool factor um so for that reason um this refugee flows are quite are quite different especially from asylum um, applicants, they're not allowed to work. It will be a net fiscal cost for the government initially. So they're quite, they're quite different. I don't think they are re reconcilable. Um, but there's also a sense as well that while kind of work routes, they're practical, they're designed to meet specific policy ends, um, policies like the illegal migration bill, there's a sense in which and critics have pointed this out, that they're more symbolic. It's about saying, hey, look, we're getting tough on irregular migration and that fundamentally is what it's about mm. let, let's let me just touch on that before we go do you think if if refugees were given the right to work that that would work better for the country because 
then you wouldn't need to put people up in hotels. Right, exactly. So this is an argument that's been made for many years. There appears to have been some movement on it. The government has um, entertained amendments to bills that loosen uh, the restrictions on working. So actually, currently, not many people... I said generally people aren't allowed to work. Well, you are under quite limited conditions if you've been waiting for at least 12 months for a decision through no fault of your own. Uh, and the job is on the shortage occupation list, which is a pretty narrow list of, of middle-skilled and high-skilled jobs. The government has flirted with loosening that, but they haven't moved on that. But yes, absolutely, NGOs have said, look, the evidence that allowing asylum seekers to work act as a pull factor there isn't any the government needs to present this evidence given that it's made this claim and also that it makes more sense for everyone it's better for integration uh being able to work and also it's better for government coffers because they would be expending less money in asylum support and accommodation and, and asylum seekers would actually be able to support themselves perfectly reasonable arguments absolutely right no, on that really instructive note, thank you so much for speaking to us, Peter. That's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. So, as you've heard there from Peter, whose research at the Migration Observatory is enlightened and instructive, and gives us a wealth of data which can assist us to engage in a more meaningful conversation about immigration policy, what is clear is the UK government is deliberately choosing to break the international rules-based order. The lack of an international court which hears breaches of the Refugee Convention means states can make a mockery of the international human rights framework. They'll pick and choose which humans are worthy of their protection. Evidently, the UK is making a choice to protect over 150,000 Ukrainians and Hong Kong nationals. By passing this legislation, they will ban anyone who arrives on these shores without prior authorization. And as Peter so succinctly put it, they are opting out of the Refugee Convention. So now that the UK has chosen to take this step, it's worth reflecting. Over the last 70 years, Britain has welcomed Jews who fled the Holocaust. Remember the kinder transport that brought thousands of children to these shores. Ugandan Asians who fled the tyranny of Idi Amin, lest you forget Rishi Sunak's parents, arrived here from Uganda. Iraqi Kurds who arrived here in the 1990s, in the early 2000s. Zimbabweans who escaped Mugabe's brutality. Eritreans and Somalis who've had to endure decades of conscription and wars. So, it's, we have to ask, how did we get here? There is no doubt that this current Home Secretary is to the right of even Theresa May, who authored the, host the hostile environment. The ideas that enabled this type of law come from a very unpleasant, intolerant place, but are being done in the name of the British people. It is suggested to us by Suella Braverman that this is what the British people voted for. So, did you really vote for refugees to be banished to Rwanda, emulating a bygone era of forcibly transporting people without their consent, having thousands of people detained on, we are told, a barge in Portland, the expansion of disused military barracks, and even the consideration, remarkably, 
of housing refugees in disused prisons. So here's a challenge for all of us. Will you be a bystander and lament about how awful all of this is? Or will you join the thousands of, together with refugee organizations around the country who are actively resisting this extraordinary step? So play your part and share this episode to spread awareness. And don't forget to subscribe and follow us. So until the next episode of the Still Be Your Eyes podcast, thanks so much for listening and goodbye.